Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Harry Jarman, your host today and founder of the Gentleman's Journal. And our guest on today's podcast is Michael Murray, the CEO of Fraser's Group. Having been appointed to the role in May 2022, at the impressive age of 33, Michael now leads some of Britain's best-known retail brands, including House of Fraser, Sports Direct, Flannels, Jack Wills and Geese and Hawks, to name but a few. In today's podcast, recorded at Fraser's Group HQ, Michael tells us how his childhood growing up in Doncaster shaped his attitude to work and why he was always destined to be an entrepreneur. In the company's latest financial results, the Fraser Group generated revenues of £5.5 billion, an impressive 15% leap on the previous year, whilst its full-year operating profits jumped 61% to £531 million. At a time when retail was in a state of flux, I asked what is he doing right, can the government do more to help retailers, and just what the future holds for retail in general. This really is a must-listen for those of you in business, especially those of you working in consumer-led brands. So without further delay, on with the podcast. Michael, thank you very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here, and I I know it's going to be of great interest to our listeners, many of whom are aspiring entrepreneurs. We're going to talk about a lot today, but I want to start first about your sort of growing up, your childhood, and everything before Fraser's, because that sort of passed away from where you are right now. So tell us about your childhood, first of all. So, yeah, I grew up in humble beginnings in Doncaster. I was quite fortunate to go to a small prep school. But my parents struggled to send me to them the prep school. They couldn't really afford it. But they had great ambitions for themselves and great ambitions for me. So they, they put me first. They put me into private school. We lived in um, on a council estate where I'd go home at night and I'd be wearing a bright maroon blazer in the middle of a council estate, which was, it stuck out like a sore thumb, if you can imagine. And my dad was... Um, he was a bricklayer and he was super ambitious himself and he just wanted the best for me and he wanted to push me as hard as he possibly could. And he gave me the most rounded background. I feel like I've experienced all sorts of different forms of life and really shaped me to who I am today. Some of them experiences have been like going to amateur boxing clubs from a very young age and one minute I'm at private school, next minute I'm in an amateur boxing club in Doncaster in above a working men's club. So I've really had a, a great broad experience from such a young age. That combination of going to a prep school and then coming back to a council estate, how do you think that sort of affected you now? I think it just gives you a well-grounding. You, you understand all different types of people. Like I could sit in a room now and be able to relate to everyone. And I think that's super important. I think you can get caught up in living in ivory towers, especially in the role I do now, and understanding what normality looks like, I think is very important. And then in terms of your dad, you know, your dad was a bricklayer, what is your, what did your mum? Mom she was an interior designer. And was it very much a case of them putting everything to send you to, to send you to this prep school? Yeah, they did anything and everything to put me first as a, as a child. I mean, we moved houses. That, that's how my dad effectively um, moved away from becoming a bricklayer into being a property developer. We moved houses, I think it was 13 times in 10 years. So from starting on that council estate to becoming like 16, 17 years old, we lived in a, one of the best roads in Doncaster in a, in, a, in a huge house. And me growing up throughout that whole journey, seeing that transformation of, and that, that drive my dad and mum had from a very young age really, really helped and benefited me and gave me that ambition. Tell us about school. 
Were you a good boy? Were you a bad boy? No, I was a good boy. Uh, so leaving the, the prep school, I was always very sporty, very competitive, always wanted to win at everything. It could be marbles, it could be conkers, it could be the cross-country race or football, anything and everything I wanted to win. Maybe not as much as the academic. I wasn't maybe as competitive in the academic field as I was on the sports field. But then went to move school at like 11 years old to go to um, a school in Sheffield. So I had to catch the bus every morning at 6.45, which wasn't the best of mornings for about six or seven years. And really got into rugby. So I was obsessed with rugby. That was mainly the primary focus, what I used to obsess at, at school. It was rugby first, then it was school second. And from there, I, we, we used to enter into loads of different competitions. And there'd be always this one school called Sedba who'd win all the tournaments, whether that's Roslyn Park Sevens or Daily Mail Cup. And I was like, well, I'm only at school once. I want to be the best. I want to play with the best and I want to win, win stuff. So when it got to sixth form, my grades were pretty average at best because living at home, I had the full flexibility, no real focus. So moved to Sedba, which was a real stark change. It was from being able to do anything you want, not really precious about doing homework, etc. to then being told by a reverend, you've got to be in bed at nine o'clock, you've got to do this, you've got to eat then, you've got to sleep then. It was a very, very different change of lifestyle. And I got there and I realised, actually, geez, I'm not that good at rugby. And I've moved all this way into the middle of nowhere in Cumbria. There's nothing, you couldn't run off even if you wanted to. Uh, to play rugby and actually I can barely get into the second team so I'm thinking oh god I've moved all this way I'm super competitive I don't know what I'm going to do for the next two years here I don't want to leave and wasted this whole time being at this school so I decided to after three or four months there was this big race and it was a big cross-country race at, at Sedba called the Wilson Run and it was super prestigious to win this schoolboy running race so I've come up to this school to play rugby after six months, three to, three to six months, call it, after the first term, I've decided, forget rugby, I'm going to try and run this running race because I can't get into the first team because the third player in my position plays for England, so it's, it's virtually impossible. Um, what position were you? Fullback. Okay, all right. So, yeah. so, so running a lot. So I, I, I was so that, running. That, that's the joint with the cross-country running. It, it was the joint, but this was like, fell running awful. So I entered into various fell running clubs and winter running leagues and came 16th the first year. And the second year I ended up winning the race. So it was actually worth worth my while going up there. So it sounds like you went from being like a, a big fish in a small pond to being a, a small fish in a much bigger pond. Exactly that. Yeah, it was yeah. a huge realisation yeah. that just because you're good at something at one level doesn't mean you can necessarily step up to the next level. Yeah. And that type... I think if I'd have had five years there, I'd have stuck at it. But the problem was with me, I have to achieve. And I looked at the probability of two years, but only really two or three rugby terms. Am I going to be able to climb the ladder? No. Okay, let's change direction. That's really, really when I first started making big decisions for myself and I'm thinking, okay, I need to change direction. Don't be afraid of change. And that's really when, when it started. Yeah. And then so from there... You obviously did well at school. You you got through it all. Yeah, well, I I went from my previous school with very basic, average grades, Bs and Cs, and then I left Sedba with three As because again, so uh, it made you, it, it gave you a bit of drive. Basically. Yeah, it gave me drive. I was, I was like, I'm not going to be up here for two years and not yeah. achieve anything. My parents have spent a fortune 
I wasn't on any scholarship or anything. Yeah. I'm not going to leave with nothing. So I had to win something at sport and I had to get my grades otherwise. Yeah. And then uni after? Uni, yeah. Yeah, where it's where else? Yeah. I went to Reading. Okay. Reading to study uh, real estate, investment and finance in real estate. And were you doing business at uni? I was doing business actually way before I went to uni. I've always been into commercial business. So buying and selling with regard to school, ski trip to like Colorado, that America has these big factory outlets. I'd take a spare suitcase, buy a suitcase full of like Nike products or yeah. Ralph Lauren in the outlet stores and then bring it back in and sell it at the school. So, so how, how are we this? 15, 14, 15. So it's pretty young. Pretty young, yeah. But my, my first real business, I would say, was I, when I was 15, I started doing GCSE parties. So in Doncaster, I'd, every Easter or cr- summer or Christmas, each big holiday, I would organise an event in one of the nightclubs and do an under-18s yeah. event. And that's really where I started no, doing No alcohol. No alcohol. <laughs> yeah, for everyone. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. So I, I, w- I would organise them events and I... For, well, actually, from a very young age, I wanted a pair of jeans, and the, these, these jeans. And my dad was like, look, I'm not going to buy you these jeans. I'll take you down. To, I know a friend who's got like a car wash, you know, the, where you see them transform garages where they're washing people's cars. Yeah. So I went down there for three to four weeks and I was getting paid barely anything. Yeah. And after three weeks working there throughout the East Holidays, I think it was, I'd, I'd earned enough money to buy the jeans I was like right I'm not doing this again this is far too much hard work and that's when I started doing the events so I did the event um, the first one for the GCSEs when I was 15 and was making a couple of thousand pounds off each event so each event would then which is a lot of money back then massive so I didn't need to do any part time job because every holiday I'd do one event which would then give me enough money to the next holiday and that's really where I started doing the events so 14, 15 and then when I went to Sedba I was doing them then for the A-level results, but it was in Leeds. So then I moved and did the events in Leeds and was trying to take on all the public schools around the north. Yeah, that was your expansion plan. That was my expansion yeah. plan. Okay. So I'd, I'd, I'd speak to everyone at school and I'd say, well, what prep school did you go to? Who do you know went to this school? And then I'd send them tickets yeah. to sell them tickets and then various schools. Then we'd all congregate yeah. in Leeds for the, for the event. So. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. So that was my first goes into business, I would so say. So that's, I mean, it sounds like you just had that drive then from an early age, from, from that sort of thing. So obviously you come to Reading, you're studying real estate. Now t- tell me, where did that come from? Was that a, I need to study something or were you, you know, was property an interest uh, from that point? By this time, I'd, I'd gr- grown up, I was 18, obviously. My parents were, were, now, were now successful, so I'd see their whole transition from starting very young to where they were. And um, I was speaking to some of my dad's friends, which which was the best universities to go to, to study real estate. It was natural. Dad was in real estate. Okay, I'll follow what's the best university to go to. Reading was the best university to go to. So that's why I decided to go to, to Reading. Before I even went to Reading, I actually got reminded a few uh, a few weeks ago. I bumped into one of the the old uh, nightclub managers. I'd already emailed him before I'd even gone to the university, before we even started in that summer, saying, "Look, I'm looking to start a business organising events." So before I even went to university, I knew that the way I was going to earn money was by doing events and hospitality. Yeah. So you did that throughout, and that obviously like you know helped contribute to. You to your, your student way of life and, and, and paying for your fun. A hundred percent, yeah. That, so that was really my first business. University was a business for me. It was business first and then it really was university second. So yeah. 
to put it into context, when I when I went to uni, I knew nobody, only one person. Yeah. By the time I left university, I had three nightclubs. Yeah. I had, and four, you knew everyone because of that, basically. As well. Yeah, I knew everyone because of that, but it wasn't. I I partnered up with somebody who who was the more sociable person. I was the more business person so I would get the contracts for all the nightclubs I would then get the leases if I was going to open a new nightclub and he would then sell the event sounds like he was squeezy in the real estate degree then yeah a little well bit. I, I have one fond memory when I was I actually started branching out at doing events in Southampton Bristol and Bath whilst at university so it was a it was a low point I was it was in the middle of exam period on the on the third year and I had to pay someone at the school who was in the year below me because they, they'd finished their exams or they hadn't start, they'd started their exams yeah. to drive me to Bristol so I could sit in the back of my golf yeah. car and revise for the exam, which was the next day, yeah, right. so that I could go and do the event in Bristol and he'd drive me back. And I, we got back in time and I'd revised, well, it's a two hour drive either yeah. way. So I got four hours of revision in and managed to do the. Uh, do the event. So your mate was your first, <laughs> the first chauffeur to help you do the first work in the back. Um, we always speak with entrepreneurs at this point because, you know, it's normally that age where they run around, they've done all these jobs and, you know, these jobs, they do have a similarity between them. You know, you know, I think in the older days, it would have been the paper round. Definitely your generation, there's, there's always a nightclub in there somewhere or something like that. But then there is this big sort of reality when it's time to leave uni and it's like, right, it's time to get a job. And, I think a lot of them realise that, yeah, while that, while that job was such fun and they met loads of people, it's not going to be a realistic, long-term, scalable career. So did you have that moment when you left and you were like, God, I've had so much fun now, now I need to go and get the job? Did you always have at the back of your head that, that you know, as soon as you left, you would be going into real estate straight away? I was fortunate that we, we, it was very successful whilst at university. I, I had no student loan when I left. I had money in the bank and I could invest in real estate with the proceeds what I was getting from the events really? company. Wow. I mean, we, we had three venues, which, yeah. we, which we owned by the time yeah. we left university. But there was a realisation moment when we started doing the, the real estate and the money what was required to invest in real estate and the returns was significant. And... We, I had a, to wait up, am I going to try and scale what I built in Reading across the country? But in reality, it's not very scalable. There's always going to be some young gun coming up at the university who just takes out all the best nights, who becomes friends with the managers. And I thought, I don't want to really want to chase my tail around. Yeah. So it really, one year after leaving uni, I started doing more and more in the real estate side, buying houses, doing them up, buying flats, uh, buying blocks, converting them all to flats and, and things like that. And that's really when I started doing the property side and reinvesting the money which I'd made and was making from the events company into into real estate. And that was when I started to to think I need to spend less time on that and more time on the future. And if that starts to erode over time, then at least I'm building a, a more sustainable future. So, and, were you, and were you doing this by, by yourself? Or were you doing it with a couple of mates? It was me and one mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, and, and residential, commercial? Uh, uh, or, residential, yeah. mainly. Yeah, yeah. So you were doing like a few few projects a year? Yeah, I would say two or three projects a year was doing. Did the first one in London, I think, I think 2013. So two years after leaving London, uh, university, and then the first one yeah. when I moved to London. So then obviously you're doing that and then there's a connection now to sports direct phrases. Tell us about that moment. So my wife, she's Mike Ashley's daughter. 
And uh, when I met Mike, he was quite intrigued with what I was doing in Reading. And he was always questioning, like what you said, why don't you scale it? Why don't you do? And I was like, it just can't be scaled. It's just, it's too much of a, it's not what, you're never going to get the big valuation from doing events or, or nightclubs. But I, he was intrigued to see what we'd built and what I was doing in the real estate side. And then I started investing with Mike. But then he said, look, why don't you come and invest for Fraser's Group? Well, it was Sports Direct back then. We need to move our stores from these smaller stores to these bigger stores. And why don't you build a property fund and build out the stores for us? I've just tried to do it and it's taken us seven years and we're 100% over budget. So it's not going to be the hardest thing to beat if you want to have a go at that. So I started and we started on the, the well-documented consultancy agreement back then. And that was just a phenomenal success. We went, it just became a, a much bigger project than I ever anticipated, to be honest. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, now you're telling that story from reading about Mike Ashley. He's not a guy that suffer fools. You know, no. he, he's a pretty direct guy. You're obviously in this senior job, you're CEO now, and, and it's a big, big, it's a big job. You know, you have multiple, multiple brands. So, you know, he must have seen something in you at that moment. And, you know, you, you had probably had to prove yourself quite a lot. Do you think there was a bit of testing then? Or do you think there was a bit of... hundred percent. It's always a test. Everything's, a, everything's a, a test in everything, what we do. And it's all about levelling up. But I was in a very unique position because I had my own business, which I didn't need to take any salary. Yeah. I had my own money. Yeah. And I could afford to take the risk yeah. And I committed with Fraser's Group, if they backed me, or Sports Direct, I keep calling it Fraser's Group, I've, yeah. I've branded myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I could commit to not taking a salary or taking anything for the first three years of the deal yeah. until the profits had started to materialise. So you're, ba you're based on a success rate. You know, success you had only. To, you had to prove yourself. Had to prove myself because How it was always going to be that critic of being Mike Ashley's son-in-law. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you've, well, I've got taken no salary and I don't only get a percentage of the profit. So if the zero profit, profit yeah, a percentage yeah. of nothing is still nothing. Yeah. But I was fortunate that I had my own business which was generating my income. So that was the bit what people yeah. didn't really... It wasn't, well, I didn't understand or wasn't well documented that I had a business which was making me the money which I lived off. So. No, for sure. Well, I think, you know, anyone that knows your father and Lord knows that it probably hasn't been a completely easy ride along the way. Just before we get on to phrases, as now it's called, there will be lots of people who know the story, um, yeah. but there will be lots of people who don't. And I know it's a long, long history, but in a brief sort of synopsis, tell us about how it started, how it's grown, and, and then we'll go on to where it is today basically but like, let's start right at the beginning so sports direct was found in 1982 one store mike ashley sports i think it was called back then he's grown it into a four or five hundred stores by the time i met mike in early 2010 11 and he was built off of being a, a brutal discounter so it was stack it high sell it cheap it's well documented it was chaotic in the stores which was perception of more value we had, we had our own brands such as Slazinger, Lonsdale, Carrymore, Everlast, which were obviously higher margin products. And then you had the big third party brands such as Nike, Adidas, etc. And that had been a very successful 35 years, it was super successful because there was no internet, there was no social media. The go-to-market for brands was through retailers, so big global brands. They needed brick and mortar retailers to get the exposure to the customer. And Mike was very, very successful at building out this company nationwide, which was the go-to place for value sports. And that's where it began. It floated in 2007 for a couple of billion pounds, and then it's had its roller coaster ride since then. And then when I joined, well, when I started on the property was in uh, 2014 or 15, I can't remember now, 
your title then was well, head, just head property of, at that point. Okay, so just property. Then. Just property at that and then, point, and then it became head of. So what happened yeah. in reality is, I was doing the property, and I was finding these new sites for Sports Direct to move from a small store or two stores in a in a town to one big store. Yeah, and then I was there. These are the ones that we sort of know. At just out of town and yeah just out of town uh, the, I mean what some of the very first ones I did was like something like Southport and I would get taken on the, the trip to see Nike or Adidas or whether it's Puma or Under Armour and go on the trip and explain our property strategy to show them that the group was changing from the old sports direct to the new sports direct and the brands would give me the feedback oh look well we understand what you're doing but why don't you just change the customer experience inside if you just did this or if you just did that it'd be a lot more appealing to us we, we get what you're doing but you're just doing a bigger version of what you've always done was that fair enough uh there was some merit to it we, i think that it look that's why the, the, the biggest global brands are, are so good because they they push the boundaries always you know they are never ever stop they always striving for better and we just historically just do a little bit and then by the time they'd just done that the brands had moved again so it, it didn't feel like much was happening but in reality it was a big difference from what what was there before but it wasn't enough and it wasn't quick enough for, for the, the brands, brands that you were retailing yeah so these these would be like adidas nike exactly okay yeah i then sat down with mike and said look if i'm going to do this be me being me if you give me an inch i, I run a mile you know i want to move everything forward you know not just the property i can't sit there listen to this feedback and do nothing about it it's just not in my dna even though i'm not getting paid to do it yeah. so i said to Mike, look we've got to change things you know if we want this business to be here for another 35 years and longer and to be a super success story we need to change the business it's a do or die yeah. and we have to change so that's when the elevation strategy was born yeah and, and this is this became your sort of job title then my job title moved from being incentivized by the property so you went off your consultancy I was, I was still on the consultancy yeah. but now, I was, that now, also now, a, now you had to become part yeah, of the now team. I was now doing the elevation of the business okay. as well so I was spearheading the strategy quite um, a weird title back then as well you know you don't right. I mean like it's quite a you don't see like many people with that title so. no it was weird like one person said what's your job just to press the, uh, the, the, elevator, <laughs> the elevator list to go up yeah. and down yeah, bellboy yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny um, but now True. loads of people use the word elevation. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's uh, now a lot more normal. So just before we get into this, I'm just going to talk about the property side really, really quickly. So, I mean, obviously, like property and retail, it goes together. And mm. I think especially at that I was sort of, say, pre-COVID, at that very disruptive moment in retail, you know, people were either selling their properties to invest in, invest in businesses. It's a pretty important part of a retail brand, you know, and then owning a property portfolio. So I guess, you know, that sort of background it's probably quite useful now. Oh, it's very useful. Yeah. You know, very useful. We, we we were in a unique position which not many retailers capitalize on. And what how what I understood is that we have got a business what wants bigger and better space yeah. and is willing to pay rent for that space. And we have got the capital to go and buy real estate, which we've got a tenant already lined up to go into. It was like the, it's like the perfect dream. I don't understand why more retailers don't do it if you've got the capital. So we would buy buildings where there was two or three years of lease left to go to another tenant, mm -hmm. knowing that, well, Sports Direct wants to come and take the space anyway. So a normal investor would say, we don't know what's going to happen in three years. We can't take that risk. That tenant might move. Whereas we could underwrite the risk with ourselves. We could also go and buy vacant properties. So when BHS went bankrupt, we could buy the businesses for virtually nothing and then reinvest them and put Sports Direct into them. And the same with um, 
doing development projects, we could anchor this, the schemes and develop our own retail parks. So they were the three pillars to the identity of what I went for. So let's now go on to this new brand, Fraser's. So Fraser's, you know, I would say the perception of it now is very, very different to what it was back then, you know, and you were right. It was, you know, part of high sell them as cheap as possible. And, and it was, you know, it was a really successful business. When Mike floated, he then re, reinvested and bought Chunk back. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of confidence on where it was going. Now, I'm probably going to miss one, but today, like, the group consists of Sports Direct, House of Fraser, Game, Jack Wills, Evan Cycles. I mean, it's it, Geeves and Hawks is a recent yeah. one. It's a big operation. When I was doing all my research for this podcast, that was sort of leveled against Fraser's as a whole. It was like, no one can really work out if you're big, big gamblers or you're geniuses. Obviously, there's a lot of thought that goes into all these decisions. Yeah. And sometimes they don't work out which is the unforgiving side of retail. But, you know, with your results, which we'll come on to in a second, it is working out. There is a strategy behind all of this. If you can go a bit into that strategy, you know, how these decisions are made and, you know, when there is a, when there is a company that's there and, you know, it might not be doing too well, is it a case of you getting approached more or you going out and looking for these opportunities? If we take a step back to when we decide we're going to change the business. And if we just start, stop at that moment there and just take a look at that, we had to change the overall business, which had been the same for 35 years. That was changing people, changing departments, changing the way we thought about working with brands, changing the way we market, changing the way we sell. We, we had to change everything. And we were doing this because of very few big global brands. So we wanted to make sure that if we were going to do this transformational change, we did it once. And we also diversified. And how we diversified, we wanted to work with the world's best aspirational brands. And we wanted to do that in a way where we could keep the business simple, but diversify. So we had the sports brands, then we diversified into premium with House of Fraser and Fraser's. And then we uh, diversified again into luxury, being final. So we had sport, premium and luxury. And within them three segments, you've got access to the world's best brands under one platform. Which, which then became Fraser's Group. And people look at our strategic stakes or strategic investments or acquisitions and there's this loads of noise. I mean, you can, read about, you can read about it all day. But if you take a step back and you look about what we've done, it all fits together, but you can't talk about it from the outset because it's commercially sensitive. And we look at things in three key pillars. We look at things as, is it going to give us access to better brands or more of our own brands. So we've been buying brands for decades. Mike bought Slazinger, Dunlop, uh, Everlast. So we've been buying our own brands for years. We bought Jack Wills three or four years ago, Jeeves and Hawks, as you well said, and we had an investment in Hugo Boss. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar is then our platform, which is, is it gonna give us unlock scale or capability what we don't currently have? So that could be when we bought studio retail, it came with a consumer finance proposition, which was regulated. So we bought studio to be able to carve off the finance piece and put it across the other brands. So that became part of our shared services and part of our platform. And then when you look at channels is the third pillar. Is it a sports channel? Is it a premium channel? Or is it a, a luxury channel? And does that then reach a new consumer? And if that is correct, so it might be, electricals okay we don't have a channel for electricals which who should we work with in electricals 
because yeah. consumers who buy electricals like having credit. So we've got the credit piece, but we don't have the electricals piece. So then it starts to fit together on how we look at our overall ecosystem and how these acquisitions start to form part of it. And this ecosystem, it's not been built, it's been bought. We bought it over the last five or six years. Flannels was bought, House of Fraser was bought, Evans was bought. That now all fits into our ecosystem. But if we wouldn't have bought them, we'd still be left with Sports Direct, not diversified at the mercy of very few brands. And now we've got a fully diversified portfolio to be able to capitalise on different economic trends. I guess where the criticism or the worry comes from is you're doing well, you've got the profit from that year, and then you're going, right, we're now going to go and do, which in the world of changing retail is, you know, bulls. We're so confident in our infrastructure, our people, that we can deliver on this. And also when you expand, you know, you've got a lot of things going on there, you know, yeah. uh, from that side. So just going going back to the strategic investments. So um, I probably got these figures wrong because I know you've had a busy summer buying a bit more, but you've got AO, which I think is 19%. You've got Boohoo, 5%, Curry's 9%, and a complete vast array. You know, you've got high industry like Mulberry, uh, down to electrical, say AO. What is the strategy behind these things? Is it to learn off these brands? Or is it to build stakes in them? What is the thinking behind that? The answer is it's it's all of the above. It's all of what you've just said. There's there's multiple different avenues what we can go down. But what I said to in in the past is, look, if we just have a meeting, you and I, nine times out of ten, nothing usually comes from a meeting. But when you've got skin in the game of you've put your money where your mouth is and you've said, right, we want to work together. And by the way, we own a percentage of you. Yeah. That meeting happens a lot quicker yeah. and things start to happen a lot quicker. Two people invested. People are invested, people are aligned. So it creates instant alignment. Now, if that investment then increases over time or decreases over time, it's a default of how them strategic priorities are developing. Yeah. And that's how that's broadly how we look at it. Obviously, the price as a function. We couldn't buy 10% of a business what was worth 100 million. You know, we'd, yeah. It would be unrealistic. So the price does form part of it. But we have got a lot of confidence in our ability to integrate by businesses which are struggling, integrate them to our ecosystem, put the right management in place and turn them businesses around. So we do have the uh, the confidence to be able to do the do these acquisitions. It shows, especially over the summer, that you're confident about the future. You yeah, know, no, I'm very mean, confident. I, I mean, there's a lot of retail that's struggling at the moment uh, for various reasons. There's, a, uh, I would say, a big question mark over about Q3 and Q4 with inflation and everything else going on, going into next year as well a lot of economic factors there you obviously as a CEO have to take a point of view and you have to go well this is where I think it's going and otherwise you wouldn't be making these investments if you thought it was going to go wrong so going into Q3 Q4 into next year how do you see that going what for consumers or for retailers for retailers from the retail point of view I mean obviously everyone knows consumers are struggling but there's also there's a you know I think in your results which is really really interesting obviously your revenue was up by 12 point seven percent this year but i think the profits which was really that was 53 percent up 284 million and then coming from the premium side which was really really strong 24.7 there's obviously a customer out there that's still shopping still buying and that you know might be telling something along where the country is as a whole i don't know i mean you probably know this much better than me but you're obviously positive about the next 12 months when we started this process we diversified ourselves so we make sure that we can we can capitalize on the different trends what happen in the marketplace. So if people want to trade down, we've got the product 
offering for that consumer. People want to trade up into super luxury and start wearing 900 pound Balenciaga trainers or off-white, we can cater for that consumer. So we're well diversified. We've got a broad range of aspirational global brands, which we work with. And it's all about product, price, and time. We've got at least three of them in, in two of the divisions at any one point. Is there four things that you can say that you're doing well that maybe other retailers, because there's been a lot of failures, you know, like in recent years. What do you think that you guys are really doing right? Yeah, I think the first thing is we work with the world's best brands. That, that is the first and foremost. That is our, that is our first pillar on all of our strategies for every division is we have to have the best brands for that particular business within our group. That is becoming harder and harder to come by as brands have got more access to direct consumer through online and they want to control their own destiny. They're working with less and less. So if you want to buy a pair of running trainers or football boots, there's, there's limited places where you can go and buy that now. Same for luxury. If you live in Leeds and you want to buy a, a Canada Goose jacket, there's very few places where you can go and yeah. buy that and it's this I guess this is mainly talking about the investment of flannels here yeah for the flannels yeah. yeah so, so that's obviously grown a huge amount huge um, yeah I think so you've got the flagships up in Leeds is that right? yeah we've got one opening in Leeds next year we've got Liverpool we've got Sheffield we've got Leicester yeah. Glasgow so that's been a big big expansion because of because of those brands that you're selling exactly yeah, yeah. so we, we've grown flannels from going to get the numbers wrong let's say call it 20 stores in 2017 to now 70 stores yeah and we'll have 80 by the end of this financial year. Yeah. And then obviously that's a big retail outlet for those brands. So you, you, they can't, you know, it's hard to ignore. It's hard to ignore, yeah. And the, these customers in brands obsess over London, you know, the Paris, London, Milan. Reality, with social media now, there's huge polarisation. Everyone wants to have that aspirational lifestyle and aspire to be better and fit in culturally and be culturally relevant. And there's nowhere for them to shop and they don't want to buy this product online because it's probably one of their highest purchased items for, for any given year. And the emotion of just buying it online and it being delivered in a bag uh, when you're at work probably doesn't do it for them. So going to the store, a beautiful environment, good customer service is, is, is what we've been trying to build out across the country. So with all that, it's, it's across country. You've got over 1,500 stores across 20 countries. I just want to talk about the UK specifically here. You know, you grew up in Doncaster. You now live in London, but you've got this amazing uh, outlook into things across the country. And, you know, there's a tendency for everyone to talk about London being the centre of the centre of the country and, and being the most important thing. But, you know, there's also a huge amount of growth going up in places like Manchester and Leeds. And, and obviously, otherwise, you wouldn't be building the sort of or investing in the real estate that you are up there how do you see that now and like how do you see that developing well so as a kid I used to go to like Leeds from Doncaster to the funnel store so I used to or I'd go up to Leeds to go to the Jack Will store now yeah. both of which we own in Fraser's group so my understanding of it weird it's very <laughs> weird we're still in the same store you know where yeah. I used to go up to yeah, yeah. wow um wow so it, it, yeah that is weird um okay. But it gives me a great understanding of regional consumers, you know, regional people who, people, the brands, global brands don't know, have never heard of Doncaster, they've never heard of Sheffield in reality. Sheffield's a top 10 city in the UK. Yeah. Glasgow is, these, these towns and cities are underrepresented from global brands. You think they're underrated as well from brands? No, I don't think they're underrated. I think brands have a certain amount of capital they can invest and they place their bets into big global cities. Yeah. And Doncaster is not on that list. Yeah. 
So our job is to go and open beautiful stores for sports, for premium and for luxury in the top, call it 100 locations across the country and act as a platform for brands to reach them consumers in the best possible way. That's broadly what our strategy is. And I've got the understanding of how much we take for granted in London yeah. and in reality, how much the, the consumers appreciate what we bring to them on their doorstep and they will support us and them shop because of the offering which we bring to them, which is not being, uh, not been present. And can some of them be, you know, technically some of them could be more profitable because you might be getting a, a better rent there or, uh, you know, it, it might be doing better than, you know, the, the economics of say a global city like London. 100%. Yeah, yeah. which is really interesting. Let's just go on to a bit of a tech thing, because obviously like this is this is now becoming a big thing in retail. Um, you've obviously got a, a huge e-commerce operation. I think Sports Direct were pretty good on that and ahead of the time when that happened. SportsDirect.com. SportsDirect.com. Above the front door. But, but you, know, they, they, you know, they obviously, there was a lot of investment there and it's becoming more and more important. Do you feel like now that it's part of a mix rather than it's one or the other? I think the cost of acquisition online now is so high and it's so hard to get cut through unless you've got a huge point of difference to create that organic traffic. People forget people pay for out-of-home media. You know, you pay for billboards. A store is a billboard. Yeah. You know, it's, and, and it's a commercial billboard, what generates revenue. I think the future is online to offline and I don't see, I think mm-hmm. offline is, is very difficult to get that cut through without paid for traffic. Yeah, and is that across the board in terms of luxury down to... So you've got, you got two things. If you're a brand and you, you are your, your own brand, you have to create the cut through through influencer marketing, sponsorships, etc. If you're a retailer selling multiple brands, if you are just online, you're not really giving them anything what they're not going to get the capabilities to do themselves, especially big global brands. They'll have their own infrastructure in terms of warehousing, logistics, and they'll be able to ship to them consumers just as good as we can as a retailer in the future. So for us, it's about creating the best branded assortment, multi-branded in the best environment around the country with a strong online proposition to go with it. But it's brick and mortar stores first and online comes second. And the brick and mortar stores will help acquire new customers for the online as well. Yeah, interesting, very interesting. You don't have to get super political here, but we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the government. It, it might not affect your business, say then say some of the bond street brands that rely on a lot of tourism and stuff like that but there's obviously been scrapping of the vat and and all these other things do you think the conservative government's done a lot are they doing enough is there anything that you think they should be doing i guess there's a lot of different factors on that but it would just be good to get your thoughts so on the tourist tax we're, we're not as exposed i mean over 90 percent of our consumers are uk so we're not as exposed as as the likes of the the, the london retailers but where the government does need to step in and have a transformation reform is on the business rates regime. That has been a disaster. Most of our rents now are equal to the rates what we pay for, for the buildings. So it makes it unviable. You're almost paying rent twice, where historically, when there was no online, rents were a lot higher um, and the rates were benchmarked at broadly 50% of what of the rent you was paying. Now, the rents have come down so much because obviously online's eating away at the, the, the retail sales. Landlords are the only ones with the flexibility to reduce the rent. Yeah. But the rates have just not reformed anywhere near quick enough. It's so outdated. It's built for, uh, it's built for retail with no online. Yeah. 
and that just needs a huge reform and that's what the government's going to need to do to to really stimulate growth in terms of retail investment is that a quick fix is it something they can be doing faster they could be doing a lot faster I understand they've got to they've got to balance their budget as well, you know. So the the money has to come from somewhere, and there's no point in them moving it too much because it's been there forever. Um, let's just talk about buying versus building. You guys have built this amazing business, a lot of it through acquisition. Do you have any views on like building a brand from scratch over buying it? And obviously, do you think there might be something that you might move into? Uh, in the future, where you are going to start building your own brands, or is it is it going to stay on the same? It's strategy? two different skill sets. And I, I don't think that we have that skill set or our DNA within our business. I think it's easier for us at the size we are now to, to incubate a brand new brand takes a lot of nurture, care, investment, time. And in a big commercial business that we are, it's usually easier for us to buy something with a much bigger base and then build it from there. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm going to end on just like one brand that I thought was really, really interesting when you brought it and sort of shocked everyone. It was Keeves and Hawks. It's a big name in the tailoring world. Savile Row, as you probably know, is, is one of the sort of like competitive streets. Everyone knows everyone else's business. And obviously, you know, sadly that went into administration. And then you guys were the buyer of it. It's quite recent. So um, December last year. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, pretty recent. Um, I know that you've probably got plans. Can you share any of those plans and what you're aiming to do? I, I love the brand. It had three role warrants. Sadly, it's now got two. But I, I love the brand. I love dressing smart and I'm into men's men's fashion. And G's and Hawks is one of them jewels which comes up very, very rarely. And it's been abused or underinvested for, for, for too long. I think number one Savile Row could become amazing, our, amazing building. Amazing building, amazing brand, 250 years of heritage, and could become the Fraser's Group jewel in, in our crown. Yeah. And we'll be investing in that brand and we'll be relaunching it uh, first half of next year. Okay. So you'll so, see investment so, into the store, yeah. investment, we're completely doing the whole, the whole new range. We're, uh, we're restarting all the, the made to measure and the bespoke. So we've got some quite exciting plans to rebuild that brand and uh, transform it. And obviously going back to the elevation side, can we see doing more luxury in the future? Do you think, you know, the right opportunities come around, you know, you're going to, yeah. you're going to jump on them? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think if the, the problem is with the um, luxury segment at the moment is the, the valuations are really, really high for us to be, uh, our biggest investment in, in, call it commercial luxury would be Hugo Boss. Yeah. So we, we had up to 30% economic interest in Hugo Boss over the past couple of years. But I'd love to own a big luxury yeah. brand. But this, it's about the mark conditions and currently... Finding the right price. Yeah. And obviously then, you know, I guess those work within... The funnels business. Yeah, yeah your current things. Yeah. Brilliant. So look, I mean, we, thank you very much for that. And it was super, super interesting. And you've given, um, yeah, you, I'm sure you've given our listeners a lot to think about, especially those in the retail business, because I think they would have found that really, really interesting. As you might know, we end these interviews with a quick fire round. How would your friends describe you? Oh, and they are going to be listening, so you can't, you can't, you can't. Uh, be careful. Then. <laughs> and I think my friends would describe me as uh, fiercely competitive. Okay, good, good. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Club promoter still? Um, I would uh, no. I think I'd be in either hospitality or property, or okay. a combination of the two. Interesting. Yeah. Does that mean we can see? Retail, maybe moving into the hospitality side. The ultimate property slash hospitality would be to own like 
iconic hotels and things yeah. like that. That's yeah. currently where we are now, off just off Oxford Street with Flannels. You've got W1 Curates. Yeah, exactly. So obviously that experiential side is quite important. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Who in the world of business do you uh, most uh, admire? Well, I'd have to have two for this. Two very different. Uh, yeah. One would be Elon Musk. Okay. And the other one would be Bernard Arnault. Okay, two very, very different. Yeah, but then them guys... Both just, the richest in the world. Both the richest in the world. No, that's number one. But they, time after time after time, whether they're buying a luxury jewellery company or hotels, even a train or uh, luxury brands, they just have that conviction of turning them businesses around over and over again. The same with Elon Musk. I mean, he's he's just a genius. He can go yeah. into any type of space and disrupt it and turn it into one of the biggest companies in the world. So I've got huge even respect. Even when people doubt him as well. Even when, yeah, I like the fact that he just, even when people doubt him, he keeps I would say, making I would say that you guys have had a bit of that though from the press. I think people underestimate you guys quite a lot and you, you seem to prove. For now. But yeah, for, for, for now, you seem to prove them wrong. What advice um, or conventional wisdom? Consistency. Okay. okay. Right. Consistency is key. Okay. You know, if you if every day when you wake up, you just you have to be consistent, and that doesn't mean consistently inconsistent. That means consistent, sticking by what your ambition is, what your goals are, breaking them down day after day, and just chipping away at that at them goals and being consistent, being consistent as, as, as you as you are with the team, with with brands, with partners, and just being consistent. I would say is is hugely important. Sporadic behaviour is a uh, He's not going to get you very far. Yeah, I suppose that's especially in retail. Yeah, especially in retail. I, I treat it to everything. Consistency is everything for me. Your worst habit? Oh, I'm not very good at being present. I'm always thinking about the future. So okay. I can never I can never be present. That's what my wife always says. You're always, <laughs> you're always muttering to yourself, staring into the abyss, talking to you. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, the most impressive thing you can cook? And again, your wife will be listening probably. So. I'm a terrible cook, but okay. I'm great at booking restaurants. So I'd say uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I am not a, I'm not a good not, cook. Not I wouldn't be able to. I don't think, I'd, I'd probably greet yogurt with strawberries. It'd be like the best <laughs> thing I could cook. I think we should pass that as a meal. What are you most proud of in your career? Today, I am probably most proud of being called out by John Donoghue, CEO of Nike, as one of their top three strategic partners, just because where we've come from to where we are today, everybody told me it was virtually impossible. Yeah. And that was kind of a, we've made it, we've yeah. got to a new base. The base is only just the beginning and we build from here. Yeah. But it kind of got crystallized a lot. Yeah, and he's obviously improved a lot. To good partner to have as well. Yeah, to start that Biggest failure and regret. A lot of entrepreneurs say they don't have any regrets, but they always do, a lot of entrepreneurs do talk about failure occasionally. I've, there's many stores which I've opened which have been too big or done the wrong concept. I've, I have failures all the time. You know, it's not it's not a straight line. It's yeah. it's learning from them failures and making sure that you can you can look at them in a positive rather than a negative. And always, if you if you try and build a business by just going too slow up the hill, you've got to overshoot sometimes to come back. So we, I've got a number of failures where we've overshot, whether it's store locations, number of stores. Uh, but learning from it, I think, is most important. Biggest regret, I would say, is I sh probably should have gone on a gap year or done something after leaving university. I've just been working since effectively being 18 years old now. So, well, even younger. So I, d I don't I don't see a light where I'm going to have that chance again. Yeah. You know, And I should have just, for the sake of six months, 
had that chance to just haven't thought about it though you're not going to go and suddenly do a no 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 it's finished too late now too late that's finished that's gone now I've got two <laughs> kids so that's finished the last piece of advice you gave people always ask me how do you think big and then get to the end end goal yeah. and I said it's all about thinking big but then breaking it down into small achievements or small small goals and whether that's a daily goal weekly goal monthly yearly if you do not have them goals yeah. I can guarantee you you will not achieve the big picture uh, ambition yeah. so just having them breaking them goals down into bite-sized chunks and ticking them off and making sure you have that consistency of resetting the goals and keep ticking them off otherwise forget the big picture you're not going to get there okay that's go for advice to what phrase would you banish from the earth from the office yeah banish from the earth Oh, just a phrase you hate, you can't stand. In this building, <laughs> yeah. we don't have enough resource to do this sort of okay. thing. Or, so can't. Yeah, can't do something, or we don't have the resource to do it, or we need something. I mean, that negative, we can't do something, drives me mad. Also, meetings with over 10 people in a meeting room, because people aren't making decisions then. People are just like holding hands and talking about great ideas and not actually doing anything. And I think having less people making decisions and a can-do attitude rather than a can't-do attitude. I think it's, it's really two things which I'd, I'd love to banish, especially from this office. Okay, fair enough. What have you recently done for the first time? I'm massively claustrophobic. Okay. And I went scuba diving because okay. I wanted to prove to myself yeah. that I could go scuba. I hated it. Yeah. And that... So yeah. you're going to be doing it again, but you've done it? No, I will do it. Okay. I don't... I like to to push myself or I don't uh, I, yeah I won't be doing it anytime soon I won't be volunteering to go on a scuba diving trip good what book has influenced you the most I read at least a book a month do you yeah how do you find time for that I do a more audio book okay. so when I'm training in the morning I'm yeah. listening to books so rather than yeah. music I just listen to books the whole time so I have a few but the the, the recent one would be uh, Ride of a Lifetime Bob Iger because he's just he's built this Disney CEO for, for the last 20 years and now he's gone back again. he's gone back again yeah. but it was great to like you could relate to a lot of the, the the deals what he'd done over the years when he bought Star Wars or when he merged Pixar or take like, his growth throughout the company so I think that was that was very interesting and that helped shape our next strategy which I've just been building over the last uh, 12 months that definitely influenced how what our strategic priorities should be uh, but also like reading the books from like Jack Walsh um, or there's another book called Relentless, which is just about staying driven and motivated. So, okay. so there's a number of, I've not given you a very good answer. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, look, he's a bit of a hero. So like, I mean, he, he seems to get it right. It's kind of amazing that he's gone back to the same job. Yeah. He thought he would have been quite done with it. But yeah. um, And last but not least, by no means least, your personal motto. So because consistency is key yeah. for me, my favourite motto is the squeaky wheel always gets the oil. Okay, explain that a little bit. Because look, if a wheel squeaks, yeah. eventually it gets the oil. So if you've got to keep squeaking, keep squeaking, keep squeaking, you will get the oil and you will achieve what you want to achieve. That's, that's some good advice to end on. Michael, thank you very, very much for being on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.